welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio, the podcast where marketing leaders inside and outside the sciences share their creative ideas and practical approaches to increasing your marketing ROI. Here's your host, Chris Connor. Hello, my friend. If this is your first time, thanks for joining me. I hope you'll also consider subscribing. If you've been here before, welcome back. This episode is aimed at founders in life science and biotech, but there are some lessons about owning your own media that will apply to everyone. Regardless, it's a fascinating topic, so stay with me for the next half hour or so and enjoy the conversation. Before we start, some folks have asked me, Chris, how do you get paid? Well, first of all, thank you for asking. I support life science companies with storytelling and content creation for their web, social, and third-party channels. If you're in this space, your deepest insights are your best branding. They educate your audience while putting a human face and voice to the brand. If you'd like to know more, I'll put a link to my calendar in the show notes so we can have a chat. Now, let's jump into it, shall we? All right. Sal Buscemi is the CEO and co-founding partner at HRN Harlem River Navy, right? Correct. And today we're going to talk about a unique source of fundraising for biotech startups that I wasn't really too aware of. Sal, welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio. Thank you for having me, Chris. It's a pleasure and a privilege. Thank you. So let's talk about fundraising from family offices. So for folks who aren't familiar, like I probably wasn't until recently, explain what a family office is and why they exist. Quantitatively, a family office has always been around, but that new nomenclative term has just come into about probably the the last 10 years. And it's basically uh, rich people or rich families. And that's quantitatively explained by someone having at least $100 million in investable assets or more. And that's what we call the 0.001%. I actually wrote a book about this that was released two years ago called Investing Legacy, how the 0.001% or one thousandth of 1% invest. It's not like the 1%, like ETFs and mutual funds. We're talking about life sciences and other what we call statement class assets um, that derive either an impact or a sense of status um, to be able to talk to your friends about. And that's professional sports or class A real estate. Or, you know, oncology companies such as, you know, or other life science companies or technology companies you and I both know. um, We're the founders of that multiple exits. They're a family themselves. And, um, you know, they're looking to do their eighth unicorn. These are what families do is that they continually just, um, you know, the the ingenuity is strong. And, you know, it's it's something that one entrepreneur told me a while ago um, who's turning 80. He said, you never really slow down. You just get better, but you, you know, you just, you never retire. You just slow down. You just continue to keep better. Yeah. So there's a phrase, uh, like if I think if you understand this phrase, which I hadn't heard before, you would get the entire episode here statement class asset. So the whole theme around investing sort of with a different mindset, obviously they expect a return, but there's, something else to it. There's a higher level goal for them, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I today you got to look at it, and I wrote about this in the book, but when we talk about statement assets, these are people who own sports teams or sky, you know, high, you know, sky, you know, uh, you know, towers, you know, skyscrapers in, in major cities. There, there are people that come to mind, such as uh, Armin, Sa- Ar- 
the I can't remember his name. Our he's the founder of Zara, and he owns some of the best real estate throughout the world um, in every major city. And he's doing that because he has a place to park his cash with certainty. These people gravitate towards the you know the highest grade assets because it gives them less problems. You know, you're dealing with something that has a sustainable store value for a while. Think about it. If you were owning the, you know, if you were the worst football owner in the world, let's just say maybe Washington, for example, and I'm not a sports fan, <laughs> that guy has continued to make money because he, it's just, you know, the rate of return on that has been incredible. And that's due to the fact that it's a statement asset and a lot of people, you know, aspire to it. They can't get to it. For us, it's class A real estate. Um, it's getting into special opportunities in life sciences where there's other larger families of uh, in kind, you know, who are strategic, who are making investments into these companies. And really what it is, it's a way for them to say, hey, look, I am doing something important. I'm involved in something that elevates my social status. Believe it or not, everybody has LinkedIn and YouTube, but everybody likes to talk to their friends about what they're doing at the, you know, at the, at the Yacht Club or, you know, when they're at F1 over here a couple of months ago where I am in Miami, if you can't tell by the chandelier. They like to brag, and that's what we call a statement asset because behind your back, everybody says, I know the owner, Chris, who owns you know, the Dallas Cowboys, for example. And that adds a tremendous amount of prestige, but it's a great place for people today to hold value in the assets that won't go down. And we're starting to see that right now with certain aspects of real estate, and you know that could happen with the stock market. It's definitely not the same things that uh, are the same pedestrian asset classes that you know the middle class or the 1% invest into. Right. So in terms of biotech, I mean, that doesn't always strike me as maybe the, the least problems, but it, I do understand the status aspect. Are biotech founders aware of this? Is this something or, or you have to educate them that, hey, there's a group of investors that you're missing? I have to educate them. And I actually fell into this, to be honest with you, quite accidentally. The reason why HRN was formed was because a lot of I have two partners which are outstanding in the life sciences um, as far as our track record in investing. And they have a pedigree with it going back to Rockefeller. And uh, my other partner basically uh, was the head of life sciences venture capital for the Texas State Teachers Pension Plan at the age of 26. So you're dealing with people that have a tremendous network. However, a lot of the people and a lot of the founders in this business, they're very myopic where they're just focusing on, I'm in the lab. This is great. This is great news. Maybe I'll get some press on it. What we noticed is that when things started getting a little creeping higher in commercial real estate, we pivoted and we had some exits at that point because we had sold or refinanced some, some real estate and we were getting outbid. And some of the families asked me, okay, so what are you doing now? And I made the pivot to life sciences. And here's what I discovered is that every family office worth their salt, usually real estate offices, have a gateway drug to life sciences, and that is through philanthropy, right? Now, that philanthropy is a bleeding heart, emotionally driven you know, circumstance. They don't know any better. They just have these things that they put it to because you know, they, you know, they're, they're constantly you know, um, you know, hit up for these, pe you know, these people, you know, go out of their way, and you know, there's always going to be that steak dinner being invited somewhere in Palm Beach you know, around our basils, you know, for these special invitations to support these charities. However, um, as time goes on, people start to learn that they're not really getting as much bang for the buck out of it. They're not getting any impact out of it. They don't even know where the money's going. That last 10% could go. I mean, if these, these philanthropic endeavors sometimes are very, have very high material expense ratios, right? So, you know, there's a lot of expenses, there's a lot of overhead, there's a lot of bloat. 
And then you don't know where that last dollar is going. It's usually the last $10, you know, the last 10 cents on the dollar. You have no idea where it's going. And it's usually some lab that somebody's working on that you or may not, you or may not, you or you may not have any sort of alignment with, right? Like he might be looking for cancer in cats and you don't even like cats. And that's an extreme example, but that's really what, what has been uncovered over the years. And when we showed that there are investors who were mostly real estate people, that they were able to invest directly into these privately held companies, it was evangelical to them. And now we were able to work with something and we built HRN and millions and millions of dollars later invested into several names that you can see by going to hrn.llc or harlemrivernavy.org. You can see the names that we've put there. And some of the CEOs, I think, will probably be on your show after me, Chris, right? Yeah. Yep. So talk about, I mean, we're we're starting to head in this direction already about sort of a different attitude. Talk about the differences from a venture capital firm with a private, you know, a family office in terms of their goals. I mean, you we sort of covered it a little bit already. They're wanting to make an impact in a different way. Yeah, it's not so much the impact. The funds are looking to just basically get to the bottom line. What is the profits? What are the, you know, what's the carry? How much, you know, revenue are we bringing in? How many, uh, what is the assets under management that we have? And unfortunately, that creates a double-edged sword, Chris, because what happens is, is that, and we saw this with hedge funds, is that the more assets they have under management, say like $20 billion, for example, on Sand Hill Road, then what's the incentive for them to take any risk, right? If they're making management fees of 2% per year, they're not really producing any what we call alpha or anything really discernible. Not only that, but they all, you know, live and die together. And right now, a lot of them are dying. Sequoia actually is laying off a lot of people. And the reason is because their business model just doesn't work. They don't have the patience for it. They are looking for seven years to get out of this in seven years. And their alignment of interest may not be the same as you as a family investor or another person who's the founder. And so those timelines, especially in your life science, becomes very, they can be kind of, um, they, they, they can become kind of a challenge in the way where you have people who have different alignment of interest trying to exit things quickly. Maybe they're exiting it a little too fast, maybe a too steep of a discount. But families, for, for the most part, have taken in as far as the private capital is concerned for a lot of these because of many reasons that they want to make an impact and they have a reputation of doing this and names on the side of libraries that they gravitate towards doing. Whereas these funds on Sand Hill Road are looking to just put money out there so that they can make the fees off of it. And that's really what it is. And if you look at anything on LinkedIn or maybe some of the, you know, on Bloomberg.com, you'll see that, you know, there is a bias right now where a lot of these families are going in and they're getting the same term um, that, you know, any other fund would get. But they don't want to be alongside the fund because they don't want to have someone that doesn't have at least a 10-year horizon with this. And I can tell you, there are some families that say, Sal, don't even talk to us unless it fits our 40-year plan. 40, 40, 40-year plan, right? Yeah. Okay, so that answered my next question. I mean, longer horizons that they're looking for. And so, I mean, that must be attractive to people looking for funds that they're dealing with people who have that long of a time horizon to invest in. Sure. Yeah. You just got to make sure you have a story and you got to make sure that, um, you know, that the, if, if you're a founder, you got to make sure that the investor actually feels something, that they're going to be a part of something better than, quite frankly, their friends are. <laughs> nice. So that got to my next question was describing the uh, emotional benefits for those family investors. So 
we sort of covered that. One of the well, things you mentioned to me. Yeah, go ahead. No, no. I mean, it's it's you know, it depends now. And I write about it in the book and I'm not trying to shill the book, but I am. Um, but it does talk about the different avatars, but it also gets into the different generations, too. If you've ever seen the movie Ford versus Ferrari, there's an excellent scene there where it is Ferrari senior. Um, and he was uh, shaming somehow in a dialogue, Harry Ford Jr. or the third. I'm not sure. And the linguistic kill shot, Chris, was you're Harry Ford Jr., not senior. And that sort of was the emotional makeup for him to try to see what he could do to outdo his father or at least do better than, you know, his father had given him all of this and he's been squandering it. And that really was sort of the driver behind him pushing Matt Damon to win the Le Mans and then, you know, start, you know, the whole car brand the way we see it today. So it's a, it, it, these, a lot of these second gens and third gens are thinking, well, how do I improve the world? I've been giving so much. These yeah. are not guys that are going to be chasing ETFs. These are not guys who are going to be, they're not looking really for an extra zero. They're looking for a maximum impact, but, a, you know, a maximum dopamine kick too as well to say, hey, look, I invested, I, you know, I can say this, one of our companies, a Vive AED, was the youngest company in FDA history to receive FDA approval for a PED at the age of 27, these guys, these co-founders. And to me, the impact is, is that's going to help many lives, right? I mean, unfortunately, it's become the norm rather than the exception, Chris, with athletes and the top of their game at the age of 16, 18, you know, falling on the ball field. And that is not something that, you know, people have become very acute to. But when you have these automatic defibrillation devices that every mom can carry in her pocketbook, it is powered by, an, guess what, an iPhone. Now, all of a sudden, you've made an impact and you're saving lives. And that's what people like. You know, people really like um, to retell those stories in certain circles. I do, too, as well. Yeah. No one's going to shed a tear for somebody who inherits a couple hundred million dollars. But there is a burden to say, what have I done, right, with my life? Like, my dad or my mom or my parents, grandparents did whatever. Here I am. I could go to school and get a degree and go out on my own. Still unlikely to make the impact that I could if I use that inheritance wisely, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, you know, that is a challenge to grow up in that shadow and have everybody look at you like, you, you just know. happen to step in it. Yeah. Or, right. you know, you're, you're part of the lucky sperm club, as Trump used to say. And that's really, some people, they don't, they're not comfortable with it. And that's why you have the recluses and you have the people who sort of shy away from society is because psychologically, they know that nobody is going to really um, feel bad for them or if they're caught crying in their Mercedes, right? It just, yeah, you know, there's other, especially today with what's going on with inflation and other circumstances, it's a lot harder for people to, to you know, to, to really put it together sometimes. And uh, there's, I mean, there's, there's a lot that has been given upon these people and there's also implicitly a lot that has been expected from them and some of them don't have a roadmap. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it speaks a lot to the value of having a purpose. And you know, mm -hmm. um, you talked a little bit. I mean, not today, but previously we talked, and I discovered the term for it, it was a deal toy. Yes. <laughs> so deal tell me what a deal toy is, and you know, give me some examples of those. You know, outside of uh, you know, for I'll just tell you. So um, outside of life sciences, we've done an, one uh, deal in AI. And um, that is something which I think is really at the time, it was a year ago, it was a very hot August. 
that I was stuck in New York dealing with this and I didn't want to work with it. However, one of the things that I need to do is to provide something to provoke the investors to go into due diligence or say, just send me the documents, right? These are investors we've known for a while. They're pretty sophisticated, but they were all on vacation. So how do you get their attention when they're on vacation? And what you have to do is you have to give them something that's going to really take their attention. It's going to suck the oxygen out of the room. And for years, there's been these overpriced acrylic deal toys that are basically glorified paperweights. But, you know, they've been around since the 70s where it showcases the logo and the amount raised and everything that had to do with that. And I said, you know what, that's not really going to get someone to really, um, you know, spend an extra hour in their hotel room looking over documents for me in the south of France or wherever they are. And this is an actual story. So... Uh, one of the football clubs at the time had just changed hands. It was turned over from a Russian oligarch over to another guy by the name of um, Todd Bohe. And Todd Bohe is the largest investor in this company called AI Scout. So I called um, a, the, the CEO of AI Scout and I said to him, I said, could you do me a favor? I said, I know that there's a time limit in here. I know that we're investing alongside a very prominent family and you know we only have a small slug, but we're very happy to be a part of it said, would you be able to get for me autographed jerseys for each investor that invests with us in HRN into AI Scout? And he said, sure. Now the conversation changed to, is there enough jerseys around? Am I in? I want the jersey because that is the ultimate sta- statement piece. If you're, you know, if, if, yeah, think about it. It's, it's, it's actually kind of compelling in a way where, you know, somebody goes over to your home and you're, you see Chelsea Football Club, their new jersey with the new IO on it signed by all them team members. That's a conversation piece that elevates your status. And that's what people really were going for. And it's, it's, it's no different than, you know, sort of the idea I got. I don't know if you remember, you're probably old enough to remember this, but um, Sports Illustrated almost went bankrupt back in 1986. And it wasn't until they pulled out because nobody wanted the swimsuit anymore. Nobody, you know, nobody wanted another, you know, magazine subscription. And at that point, a lot of people were getting married and you know, the magazine subscriptions were becoming sort of, tiresome so on the verge of bankruptcy what they did was they came up with the football phone and everybody had to have the football phone and i don't know if you remember this but there's commercials for the football phones and that put sports illustrated back into the black um and you know the rest is history so i had to do something with that in order to give away something or put together some some sort of a um deal toy if you will for these people to to move and be motivated to do something because it was very, the deal itself was unique and everything else checked all the boxes as far as a world-class CEO with many exits and, um, you know, having a very world-class family office that's in kind um, that invested in companies such as, um, you know, Fanatics and FanDuel and everything. So everything was fitting well, but we just had to get their attention, right? Because to them, it's like, oh, we can wait until after vacation. I'm like, nope. You know, and if you don't get it, then you're not, if you're not one of the first guys to come in, you're not going to get the jersey. Yeah. So you have an example from life sciences as well, right? It's not I, necessarily what you would call a toy, but it's a perk for sure. It, it's a perk. So one of the things that we're doing right now is we've invested into a company um, that's having a roll down. And the co-founder of that company is a, is a Nobel Prize winner. And in order to raise money quickly for this, for this other company, this roll down that we are investing into, there's two things that we're going to do, okay? Number one, first person that comes to uh, the table with a million dollars gets to eat lunch with their family um, with this Nobel Prize winner in Texas, okay? Perfect. Now, 
all of a sudden, what are you thinking? Snap, you know, TikTok, kids, you know, old in-laws and, every, you know, like people looking <laughs> at you online. No, I'm really like I'm taking photos of me and a Nobel Prize laureate of a company we invested into. If that doesn't say you did make good decisions in life, I don't know what do- I mean, in, in an instant, I don't know what does. And there's really not a lot of things that add legitimacy to that. But to those who can't make it, the deal toys that we're given uh, are going to be, um, because this is the second company that we're actually working with them on, they're going to have little um, Nobel Prize medals that are made, right? Out of stainless steel with the name of the company and the date and all of that um, that they'll be able to use. Now they have a collector's edition of two of them, one company called the Prisity and then the roll down after that. And so you don't want to like stop that. So if we do anything else, you know, with this guy or something, then you get another Nobel Prize. You know, I mean, it's made out of fake, you know, metal and everything. It's, you know, stainless steel probably. But that's great because now everybody is another conversation piece. I can put it in the office. I can, you know, well, what is this? You know, Nobel Prize. Oh, we invested in a Nobel Prize as co-CEO of a company. That is music to the ears of people who would never want to invest in life sciences to begin with. Does that make sense? It's just now of a sudden it's just opening it up. You know, it's reframing the conversation completely to something where how do I benefit immediately from this? Yeah. So how, if I'm a biotech founder, how do I find out about these opportunities and how do I approach that type of investor differently than I might a typical VC? I'm going to say, and I've seen this before, patience is your friend. And you need to, I think the one thing that is really, you know, I I, I moved to Miami and when I was down here, when I first moved, it was um, right before Silicon Valley Bank went under, right? And there was a whole ecosystem of people. And I think Miami was a beneficiary during the pandemic where it tried to rebrand itself as like the new Wall Street. Not really, but it certainly came into its own as related to crypto and technology. So you had a lot of crypto and technology guys come down here. And the problem with them is that they all treat investors like uh, very transactionally, like an ATM. And it's awkward. And it is, I mean, it is, you know, I, just to tell you, like, you know, you go to a meeting, you see that they have an iPad underneath their left arm, you're like, oh, no, you're going to be pitched. <laughs> you know, like, oh, you know, and then he's like, dude, I'm like, just put it down put it down let's talk you know let's put it down i actually did put something together i had someone i somebody actually raised one hundred fifty thousand dollars because of my help and i actually wrote a little handbook called calling the capital it's free on amazon but it's just it's it's 20 ways to add urgency and you know that um you know the dinner is one way to do it but when you go to these things what you want to do is you want to make sure that you communicate to these people directly and you're building a relationship with them okay I send a lot of emails out. Our, our family office, one of the rules is interactivity is the new currency. I like to stay on top of it. Um, it keeps us fresh and relevant. If you're not doing that, you're losing. Because the problem is, is the difference between you and, you know, the rock star over there is the fact is how much media that, you know, that you own. If you own a lot of media, for example, and you're well known and you're, you know, a Nobel Prize winner, you're going to be able to capture more investment capital then say, uh, or if you're just an Instagram model, you own media, right? You can sell anything at any point to do that. And what a lot of people don't understand or they haven't gotten their heads around it yet is that the new currency today is media and people are paying more for attention than they will, you know, than they, than, than actually a barrel of oil. If you think about it during the 19th and 18th centuries, a lot of wealth was created through oil. Today it's through 
media. It's through attention. And if you can continue to command the attention of your investors by gently treating them like a friend, then things are going to go well. I, I always write, you know, like I'm writing to one person when I write the emails. And it's so important for people to do this, that it's really how you aggregate assets the fastest is by building relationships with people. Uh, not by, you know, somebody who said, oh, well, yeah, I know me, I got to cobble a few people together. You don't want to deal with that. You want to build relationships with people so that they feel meaningful um, for being a part of your life. And you have to really open it. And I treat my, we have 20 families, right? 20 families that we actively manage. And I treat them all like girlfriends, you know, like all, you know, I treat them all the same. You know, I love them all the same. Some of them are, you know, a little different than others. But you have to really show, you know, that you care for them. And that should be probably when you're starting out the top of your of your priority is, is speaking to these investors, getting feedback from them. And then, you know, maybe talking to a guy like me, if you have a good idea later on about it, but it, it becomes very difficult when people try to turn things into something that, you know, they're basically looking for, you know, it's like speed dating and they're looking for marriage on the first date. It becomes kind of, it creeps out a lot of people. And, you know, a lot of people who are not used to building relationships, they'll rely on something else. Sort of like a comic who's not good will rely on using bad words or something, to, you know, as a cover-up. These scientists will go back and what I call quantsplain to their investors why they need to, you know, and then it becomes just all numbers and everything. And, and, and people today, if you were to, if you were to do some research, um, they don't trust facts and figures anymore. They trust the stories and that's really what it is. And they want to make sure that they're sitting in front of someone and, you know, that person's going to make the best decisions as a steward of their wealth and capital to go into it because at the end of the day and everybody listening to this as a founder should really really figure this out nobody is going to part with their life savings unless they give you their time first and that's so important to remember right yeah no that's a good that's a great way to finish i want to back up to one and then i want to talk a little bit more about possibilities of media but you mentioned asking these people for feedback. So I'm a biotech founder and I come to you and I say feedback on my ideas on what? Cause I've heard the phrase, if you want no, um, no, yeah. I, money, ask for advice. Right? No, 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 not feedback. Sorry. 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 I meant to say advice. And that is, you're absolutely right. You, you don't want feedback because now you have an automatic critic. You want advice. Could you give me some advice? Because now it seems as though we're like, you know, sort of more aligned, like a partner, you know, um, you know, Parapasu, even Stephen, rather than, um, you know, if you're asking for feedback, the advice is more important. And usually nine times out of 10, they will say, I have another guy you should talk to who really likes this stuff. And that's how you get to that. You are. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head as it relates to that one. That was a Freudian slip on the feedback. <laughs> no worries. Yeah. So I think the whole phrase, Very if you good, ask for money, yeah. you're. Yeah, you're gonna get advice, but if you ask for advice, you might get some money. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Talk a little bit more about owning your own media. As you know, if you're a founder, how do you think about that? Creating enough media to gather that attention aside from whatever face-to-face -face meetings you happen to land. I think the media is important because it, it amplifies, but it also doesn't go anywhere. That's yours, right? I mean, so people who are fans of Kim Kardashian are not going anywhere. The fans who are fans of your podcast are fans, of, and they're not going anywhere either. But that just continues to grow every time. The media, to me, is not, it, it's not the, 
the real leverage comes from the audience and the media is just a, sort of the mechanism for people to grow an audience because the audience just continues to grow itself like a tree. And when you think of it that way, then you start to look at it saying, huh, this really is an asset. I know I'm a little older than the rest of my colleagues and everything. What I've tried has not really worked out very well. And now I'm starting to see a lot of CEOs get on podcasts now, believe it or not, through my urging, because they have to maintain that sort of relevancy. Because if I were to show a CEO, I mean, we didn't do a deal. A guy didn't have a website. I said, you don't even have a website yet. How do you want to, you just have a pitch book. And I know you've been doing stuff in the lab. And I know there's other things going on. But my investors are going to show this to their friends and they're going to automatically say no, because it's not, there's nothing sensational there. Not that it needs to be sensational, but there's nothing there that proves that, hey, I am going out of my way to make sure that you as the investor looks good investing in my deal. And if you can make your investor look good by investing in your deal, that's really what it is. You want them to be proud of working with you, to associate with you, to um, feel as though that, hey, this is something where, you know, whether or not the technology works, I'm assuming it does. You really wanted to focus on how they feel working with you. And that comes with time, but that also comes with, with effort. And I always tell people, and I do this the same thing too as well, always budget a little more time than you think between building your business and building your media. Because at the end of the day, your business could, could flop, but that media is leverageable to another company or someone else's company or something else. And that's what people don't understand is that building relationships in mass like this, having that type of control is the ultimate wealth creator. Whether you're a founder looking for money or whether you're someone selling Beanie Babies on Instagram or, you know, anything else as far as e-commerce is concerned, that's the kind of world that we're in today. And those who are going to pay attention to their investors the most and obsess about that are going to be the winners. Yeah. A previous guest on this podcast would say that, you know, building your own media is like telling your story at scale and time shifted so people can listen whenever they want. It's always out there and it's something you can always use. You build that audience, like you say, and it, you know, it, it's always working for you. And as a podcaster, I would just say like people, when they see you over and over or they hear you over and over that that's a big relationship builder because they feel like they know you. I've had strangers that I never met come up to me at an event and say, you're that podcast guy. And as if we, been buddies for a long time you know it, it's it's strange i had a podcast for commercial investing because that was my background you know coming out of wall street and managing my first institutional fund at 29 but that was also during distress times and we're going back into the distress times right now so i'm going to be you know kind of busy probably this fall going into the next 12 months however with that said is uh people would listen to me and and, and they would really get upset if you didn't record a podcast <laughs> say, hey where you know like expletives where's the you know there's the podcast because there's certain people that you know people like to work on certain um they like structure in their lives and if you're part of their everyday structure and they're learning something from you then they're always going to go to it there's podcasts that i listen to that some people would never listen to um but you know they to the point is, is that I, there's an expectation that, hey, I have a relationship with this guy, just like my wife does with all the, you know, People magazine celebrities that she, you know, reads to see who's getting divorced and who's together. Like it, people care about that, but this is a little more interactive and people really like that. And it happens across yeah. not just podcasts, but, you know, TikTok and Instagram and, you know, what have you. 
Well, Sal Buscemi, this has been great. Not only a really fun podcast, but I, I learned a lot. I have no doubt that uh, listeners are going to learn a lot. Hopefully some founders get some good ideas out here and, and know, uh, can take a little better approach on looking for funds. Sure. No, absolutely. And again, if they want that free handbook, they can go to uh, callingthecapital.com. There's all sorts of things in there that I talk about as far as being able to call capital correctly while relationship building. And maybe you might have to accelerate a little bit. We all do. But this is how you do it properly um, without having to lose any sort of uh, your dignity. Yes, I read that book this week. And Oh, you did? Okay. It's not, it's not complicated stuff. It's a good reminder. It's just all, a lot of all case stuff studies. that you are totally capable of doing. Yes, absolutely. No, and I appreciate that, Chris. Yeah, my pleasure. One of the takeaways of this conversation for me is that just like any other type of marketing, it's important to know your customer, what they value, and how to speak to them. The family office represents a source of funding I wasn't familiar with. Everything Sal said makes sense, and I always enjoy the chance to better understand how different people think about anything. What's exciting, and why you should subscribe to this podcast and or my Substack so that you don't miss it, is that I'll be interviewing the founder of one of the companies Sal has introduced me to, and that'll be published in the next few weeks, barring any rescheduling. Until then, share this with your colleagues, and I'll be back soon. Bye-bye.